1983. Gail Matthews is 24 years old. The past few months feel illusory. Nights spent in bars nursing beers. Nights spent with Johns to pay rent. She once had an apartment, somewhere to call home. Not these cheap motels that smelled of cigarette smoke, sweat. The apartment was near the airport. Gail could still hear the commercial airliners overhead, loud enough to be a roar. She never did mind it. In fact, Gail missed it. But she lost that place. Like other things in her life, it was gone. And not coming back. She did have Kurt. Though somehow he made things worse than before. It's Kurt's gambling problem. He never made money from this addiction. Only lost money. So, Gail started going home with men. They needed money to eat each day, and it was easy for Gail. She had her silky black hair, an exotic look. They never talked about it, Gail and Kurt. Acknowledging it in conversation would break the fragile bond between them. Besides, Kurt didn't want to work a steady job. Oh, he has his intelligence, his vocabulary. But those tools are used to impress at the bar. What could be his saving grace cast away as a parlor trick? Tonight, they're at the VIP tavern and low on money. The couple share two beers, sipping them slowly, making each sip count. Kurt plays a few games of Pac-Man. Time passes. Then, Kurt feels Gail's hand on his shoulder. First gentle, then a light squeeze. Kurt knows what that means. The familiar yet strange mixture of relief and revulsion growing in his chest. The relief always wins out. Gail tells him to go to the motel room, that she'll meet him back here later. Kurt usually calls the shots, but he's obedient in this case. He doesn't want to stick around. Kurt leaves the bar with his hands clenching. The little pale half-moons indent into the skin of his palms. The motel is a little far from the VIP tavern, so he makes his mind up to take a bus. Kurt stands waiting, trying not to think of anything. Take in the scenery. In another life, they're married. But this isn't another life. It's in this train of thought when Kurt notices the green Ford. It has sanded circular marks on it, like someone scrubbed parts of the paint job off. As the truck grows closer, Kurt feels a shock jolt him completely awake. It's Gail. She's sitting in the passenger seat next to 30-ish-year-old male. He's in a plaid shirt. But something is off about Gail. Kurt's alarm bells are ringing. Gail's pressed hard against the passenger side door staring into Kurt's eyes with a dazed expression. She looks like a Gale statue, not the compassionate woman who comforted him in the bar moments ago. Kurt notices his arm suspended in the air, mid-wave. His confusion stopped him from completing the simple task. He finishes this now, giving a full wave, but he sees Gale still in her strange, passive state. Kurt has seen her with men before. He didn't like to think about what that meant, but he wasn't stupid. They lived a charade to get by and make money, but there is something different about this. Something isn't right. The truck halts for a moment. Kurt gave chase. This is his chance. His moment to protect her. Kurt can feel his legs and chest burning. He can hear his heart beating faster. The sound of his breath puffing. The man in the green truck glances at Kurt. A serious look on his face, and he looks... Unimpressed. The vehicle disappears in the distance. Growing smaller with each passing moment. Kurt is overwhelmed with a feeling of helplessness. He couldn't catch the truck on foot. He returned to the tavern instead of taking the bus. At the bar, he sat picking his fingers. He waits, 
hours pass. When the bar closes, Kurt returns to their motel and waits for Gail to show. He doesn't know what else to do. That night, Kurt lays on the cheap spring mattress watching cars pass in the night. He drew the curtains open, hoping to catch sight of Gail when she returned. Did I fail her? Was I too slow? So many questions. The next day, Kurt calls the police. It feels alien talking to authorities. They sense who and what he is. Kurt knows it. It's like he gave a loser scent through the phone. He stinks of his life's failures. The operator tells Kurt there isn't much the police can do. He can't file a missing person's report. He isn't family. In the future, a task force investigating old leads reaches out to Kurt. He's serving time in prison. Kurt agrees to hypnosis. Through this method, authorities seek new information to stop the Green River Killer. A license plate. A face. Anything. Nothing comes of it. Kurt does have something to tell the investigators. As the years passed, when Kurt found himself alone, maybe at some cheap motel, sometimes, though rare, when his eyes glanced a window, the same image. Behind the glass would stand Gail, her hand pressed to the surface of the window, not looking at him, but through him, with the only face he sees now when he thinks of her. She's screaming. Welcome, listener. I'm glad you're here. Take a seat, next to the fire. was a slow learner. For Gary Ridgway as a child, even the act of remembering normal, everyday things was a difficult task. His family had many pets, and Gary struggled to remember the names of the various cats and dogs and whatever else the family had at the time. From an early age, school was a challenge for him. What came to his brothers with ease was a near-Herculean task for Gary. He couldn't understand how reading came so easy to others. For him, the words looked like a jumbled mess on the page like alphabet soup in a bowl. Random. From early on, Gary felt like an outsider in school. When his teachers allowed for it, he sat in the back of class. He didn't feel capable of making friends with other students. Gary didn't get it, whatever it was. His family moved year to year. It only reinforced those feelings. At home, his brothers seemed to view Gary as less than, as in less than the rest of the family. Yes, Gary was the black sheep, it was like there was a mistake at the hospital and that his parents were presented the wrong child. His brothers never warmed to him. Gary's brother Greg was the prize of the family. His parents make it obvious that Greg was the favorite, the winner of some unseen award in a game that Gary didn't know they were playing. This was a source of great anger for Gary. Thomas, 
His father was a bus driver, a stern, frightening figure. He believed in discipline. After work, Thomas was known to gaze tunnel-eyed at the television set, alone and statuesque. There was an air of danger in Gary's father's quiet stoicism, like the cords of his father's soul were pulled too tight. Thomas the feared, Thomas the tyrant. When he was in disciplinary mode, Thomas would come running into the living room stick or belt in hand. The children sat there sobbing, a mixture of tears and snot pouring from their face. The children would run from their father crying out, begging for him to stop. But he always caught up. And those who got it first got it the worst. That was usually Gary. So with his father's fresh fury, the belt or switch would come snapping down on pale flesh. And the neighbors, including the boys' friends, could hear the screams from several homes down the street. There were the rare nights when Thomas warmed up to the children. He'd tell the same stories of growing up in New Mexico that everyone had heard for the umpteenth time. No one dared to stop him. They sat listening intently. If someone looked away or yawned, it could mean trouble, and trouble meant discipline. So the children sat listening to the same stories with a frozen grin on their face. December 1983. It's a snowy night in Washington. Becky finds herself staring out the window in disbelief. It really is coming down out there. She knows she must go out in that. The money is drying up. She can't stay at the motel for free. Telling herself she's put it off long enough, Becky zips on her warmest coat and heads out into the cold. She walks carefully through the icy parking lot, careful not to fall. Becky makes her way to her usual spot. She does her best to look sexy, but she can hardly feel her toes. A few vehicles pass, but the drivers don't look her way. Probably headed home or someplace warm. Becky has a two-year-old back home. She's 20, but she feels much older. So much has happened since she left home. She doesn't know how she'll ever face going back. Becky thinks how her baby must be talking by now. There's a tightness in her chest, and she pushes back a choking feeling. You want to get out of this snow? A man's voice. Becky didn't realize the green truck had pulled up to her. She'd been lost in thought with her head down, hands dug into her pockets. She asks if he's looking to party. The man nods yes. She asks if he's a cop. The man shakes his head no. Becky asks for his ID. He hands it to her. He looks normal enough. Fuck it, she thinks. I need to get out of this cold. If it's in a jail cell, so be it. It wouldn't be the first time. She tells the man, no crazy shit. And he assures her, I just want regular sex. They drive in silence. He seems cagey. So, where did you want to do it, she asks. He looks at her with slightly lowered eyes. Usually in the back of my truck. But I was thinking my place because of the snow. There must have been something uneasy in her face because his caginess slips away in an instance. The man's face takes on the characteristics of a shy boy. We don't have to go to my place if you don't want to. My boy is sleeping, so we'd have to be extra quiet anyway. That catches Becky's attention. You have a boy? The man smiles. Yeah, I do. He lowers the truck's sun visor, and there, photographed, is his little boy. Becky warms to the man. I've got a two-year-old girl back home. Smiling still, the man closes the visor. They pull up to his home and Becky notes that it's small. The windows are dark. 
Once inside, the man turns on a small light. There are odd knickknacks all over the house. Do you like them? He asks her. She nods, asks where he got them. All kinds of places, sometimes at yard sales, sometimes from friends. There is a slight noise from the other end of the house. That's my boy. We'll have to keep it down. In bed, the man is gentle with Becky. He has a reassuring smile that has kept her at ease. Earlier, he led her to his bedroom by hand, behaved like a gentleman. Better than most, she had to admit. But there was something off about him. Something in his mannerisms Becky couldn't place. And then she noticed he was getting rougher. It was starting to hurt. Slowly, the man gets forceful. The bed now audibly creaking and slamming with each forceful thrust. He looks like he's in pain. She's about to tell him to slow down that it's okay. Becky's been with his type. Mommy issues. There's a sudden shift. The room spins and she's on the floor. Pain, so much sudden pain, and she can't breathe. Did he throw her? She grabs for the forearm at her throat. It's squeezing against her windpipe. Becky tries to cry out. A short, stifled gurgle is the only thing that escapes from her mouth, and the burning. Her throat burns, and her eyes water. With terror, she's clawing at the hairy arm around her neck, fingernails snapping against the rough skin. Two cloudy rings of black surround her immediate vision. A sudden explosion of light, then little colored worms followed by white dots. Becky's legs start to give out. Her shoulders start to relax. Sinking. That sinking feeling. Is this it? Is this the end? Becky thinks of her daughter. She's probably talking by now. Then her head pops free. It's with such force that the man's arm hair burns her face. Becky had dug her nails into the man's arms. And hard. Violent enough to stop him. Weaken this awful man's grip around her neck. Was it him? Was it the Green River Killer? She tries to scream again, but there's only burning. He's standing naked above her, looking at the scrapes. A single nail still stuck deep into his arm. Shit! He belts out in what is somehow a whisper and a shout. Becky's on her hands and knees now. Her arms are shaking with each movement. She's crawling. Looking back, she sees the man grab at something. Becky turns her attention back to the door. She starts to pull herself up by the handle when she's dragged back down. Gary has a dress sock wrapped around the woman's throat and he's pulling with all of his strength. Becky is fighting but there's nothing to grab at but the sock so she slips two fingers under. Her legs are still kicking when she suddenly goes limp and then there's an audible pop and Gary lets out a sigh of relief. Gary ties the sock tight enough that her two fingers don't slip from the makeshift ligature. Becky's brought to his truck, then he's off to take her to one of his clusters. Gary's mother, Mary, works for J.C. Penney. An important part of his history, she somehow was a more imposing figure than Thomas. She loomed over the household like a great monolith. If Gary's father believed in discipline, then his mother sat at the altar of efficiency. She needed the house to stay clean, needed clothes unwrinkled and accounted for, bedrooms neat and tidy, these weren't things Mary wanted. It is what she needed. Even Big Bad Thomas knew that if Mary was on one of her manic cleanliness-related episodes, that he should stay clear. If angered enough, Mary would beat her husband. On one occasion, Thomas had something to say, a snide comment or remark. Thomas sat surprised as Mary marched off to the kitchen. He was even more surprised as the porcelain plate came crashing down over his head. The blood trickled down over his eyes and Thomas learned that day. He knew not to upset her, 
Mary had won the power struggle. She wore the pants. Snacks were a big no-no in the Ridgeway house. Even something like a slice of bread isn't allowed. If the children were caught sneaking a crumb, then Mary would sick Thomas on them. Gary's was a bedwetter. The other children went through bedwetting, but Gary couldn't stop. Nearly every night he wet the bed. Mary's distaste was obvious. She'd make Gary strip the bed, then force him into a tub of ice-cold water. Soaked and standing, Mary washed his genitals with great force, scrubbing them raw. Gary would stand shivering, feelings of shame and fear. Mary and Thomas found Gary's allergies disgusting. His nose was always runny, wet. Gary didn't always have a tissue on hand. If mucus ran down his face, his parents screamed at him. If Gary wiped his nose with a sleeve, his parents shrieked with disgust. He couldn't win. Young Gary often found himself getting lost. His memory was not great. He often struggled finding his way back home after school. One day on his way home, Gary found himself with a pain in his side so tremendous that he couldn't physically move. He lay on the ground for hours, crying, alone, confused. When the pain subsided, Gary went home to find his parents furious with him. They didn't want to hear Gary's excuses. In that moment, young Gary's eyes close as he hears the snap of his father's belt being removed from his waist. When Gary turned eight years old, the family moved to Idaho. Gary was relentlessly bullied. One child named Dennis was much larger than Gary. He was the main source of Gary's torment during that time. Dennis waited each day after school for Gary and jumped him, pounding him until he was bloodied and bruised. Gary left school at the end of each day with his stomach in knots, his tongue in his throat, heart pounding. He begged his father for help. Thomas wasn't sympathetic and told Gary that if he comes home, beat up one more time, that he would beat his son's ass himself. Thomas takes Gary to the side and teaches him how to fight with his hands. He teaches him to jab and how to throw a haymaker, to hook someone's face by the cheek, rip at their eyes if it went to the ground. Gary spent that evening boxing shadows. The next day at school, Gary watched the clock tick away, the bell ringing a cold start. Time to leave. He grabbed his gear, stood up, and began his march towards his own beating. As he walked towards the exit, Gary saw his father standing watch from afar. Dennis was waiting near as well. With a charge, Gary's bully pounced. This time, Gary fights back. They stand throwing blows. Gary crying from the rage, his eyes burning bright red. Dennis the bully panics. He gives in and grabs at Gary, a feeble attempt to take him to the ground. But he's surprised. Dennis is overpowered, pinned to the ground. Dennis bursts out in sobs. At first, he feels pain. But as the fists come raining down on Dennis's unprotected face, the once prideful bully's vision fades into night. Gary stands up. His hands are shaking and covered with blood. He stares up at his father. Thomas is smiling. A feeling of power, of pride, washes over young Gary. This moment is transformative. Something shifts in the child, activates. Gary becomes a feared fighter in school. Known for not stopping, no quarter given to whatever unfortunate soul stepped to him. Gary developed a method of pinning his opponent to the ground with both of his arms and legs. In MMA, they refer to this as the full mount. His would-be attacker would lie helpless, incapable of moving. Now trapped, they couldn't do anything to stop the near-endless blows. And with anger and great force, they did rain down. Pulled off the limp body of the misguided bully of the day Gary would feel in control. He was the one to respect. 
Perhaps that's part of why he was held back. Gary's rage was uncontrollable. To get his revenge, he goes to his school after hours and gathers large stones. He picked the heavy rocks up and threw them as hard as he could at the school windows from a distance. Some of the rocks slapped harmlessly off the side of the school windows, but some some of them smashed through, creating holes surrounded by frosted spider webs. Gary was never caught. In bed at night with no one around, he fantasized about committing violent acts. Sometimes Gary would light fires, small to medium-sized fires, and watch the burn. One day he took old newspapers to an empty garage. Gary lit it ablaze, burning it to the ground. On another occasion, he did the same to an outhouse. Gary never stuck around to watch for very long. He'd run home as fast as his feet allowed, then hide in the family basement, heart pounding to the sound of the sirens, the sirens of fire engines. Every time he repeated this cycle, it was with no self-reflection. He never questioned these impulses. Gary only knew that he wanted to do it, so he acted. At 13, Gary's family uproots and moves from Idaho to Seattle. He still wets the bed. His mother still scrubbed his privates each morning. Sometimes Gary became aroused from the scrubbing. His mother would admonish him, point and laugh, bring it up at the dinner table. Beneath the surface, Gary's anger boiled. His mother would sunbathe nude. When finished, she would walk around the house undressed. His parents never discussed sex with him. It was a forbidden subject, taboo. Young Gary was told masturbation was one of the greatest sins a person can commit. This was sexually confusing for Gary. He associated sexuality as something to be ashamed of, something secret, something devious. He began thinking about sex a lot. Two girls moved in next door and Gary would see them next door swimming. He'd watch them without their knowledge, spying. One day Gary was invited to join them. One of the girls, at 17, was much older than Gary. He had strong sexual desires for her that he struggled to contain. On the day he was invited over, after the swimming, they all sat in their towels watching the television. Gary angled himself so that through his towel he could expose himself to her. He fantasized that she would see his erect penis and become so overcome with lust that she'd have sex with him on the spot. Nothing ever came of this. Gary knew the girl saw, but she never acknowledged being exposed. That night, Gary masturbated to the memory of the act, the fact that the girl had no choice but to see him as he pleased, the control. This became an obsession. Sometimes Gary became sexually frustrated fantasizing about her. His bedroom window had a view into hers. Sometimes he'd peek through his blinds to see if he could get a view of her in her underwear. One night, Gary's urges became too much for him to bear. In what felt like a dream state, he found himself walking next door, his feet patting the night-cooled grass. He crept alongside the house, then gently, alongside the outside of her window. In a daze, he rapped on the window, seeing his hand ball and tap the glass in slow motion. Gary could see the vibrations pulse from each rap on the glass. The window looked like a picture of a picture of a picture. He could see into the future in that moment. The girl seeing Gary at the window, she overcome with sexual desire, inviting Gary into her room for a passionate night of sex. Gary snapped out of his trance when he heard the front door slam open. The girl's father shouted something out in a rage. Gary could hear the grown man stomping his way to the side of the house. Feeling more fear than he'd ever felt in his life, Gary ran as fast as he could back home. 
Had the girl's father been quiet with his approach, Gary would have likely still been locked in his days, caught by her father. This is something young Gary had nightmares of for years, trying to run away, but this time his movement's too slow, then caught by her father. Gary's actions continued to escalate. One day, he was with a younger cousin, and he convinced her to go into the woods with him. Gary paid her a nickel to feel her privates. She didn't keep this secret to herself. Gary was punished. Sometimes, so overcome by his urges, Gary would stage accidents. Gary would, and this is in quotes, accidentally brush his hands against a girl's breasts or privates, then run into the bathroom to masturbate. Gary thought he always got away with it, but he never noticed the confused and angered looks these girls gave him, or didn't care if he did. Gary continued to slip in school. Later in life, his IQ was measured at 82. He was the middle child, but his younger brother was far ahead of him. At 14 years old, he still struggled to read even basic children's books. Books meant for children nine years younger than him. Gary grew fond of killing animals. He'd shoot birds in his backyard. They'd fall without a sound. Gary preferred it when they still lived for a while and made sounds of anguish. He once took a family cat and placed it in a cooler. This cooler was airtight. The cat, grabbed by its scruff, placed kicking and panicked in its plastic coffin. Gary slammed the cover down hard. The noise of struggle immediate. Gary could hear forceful clawing. He savored each scratch. Then he waited until the next day to open the cooler. The cat was stiff. The inside of the cooler embedded with deep claw marks. Gary disposed of the cat, rinsed out the cooler, then put it back where he found it. Again, Gary smashed the school windows out with rocks. His days blending, blurring. He didn't understand these impulses. This time, Gary was caught. His mother and the school agreed to make him see a psychologist. They tried to talk with him, but could never crack through his shell. When that failed, they tried to hypnotize him, but there was still nothing in there. Nothing kicking around. Gary was mechanical in his thoughts and actions. He had desires, and he acted. At this time, Gary carried a knife on his person. It made him feel strong, in control. It was the knowledge that he could grab the knife by its handle, and with a single thrust, change the dynamic of any situation in an instant. Gary would sometimes lay in bed and stare at the blade, turning it over in this hand. There was no reflection. The knife turning in the sun, beneath his window he swore he saw faces in the glint. On a walk to a school dance, Gary saw a six-year-old boy walking in his direction. Without thinking, Gary hid in the bushes. Some feeling deep inside, some impulse had taken over. Gary pulled the unsuspecting child into the bushes with him. For a moment, they stared at each other, eyes locked. Gary felt his knife sink into the boy's stomach. He looked down and saw the blade penetrating the small child's kidney. Blood poured from the wound. The boy was in shock. Gary ran. Once again, he hid in the basement, the sound of sirens and his beating heart echoing in his ears. Gary was never found out. A teacher found the boy bleeding and carried him to safety. The boy didn't know who Gary was, so he got away with it. By the end of middle school, Gary met a girl in Kitsap County. It was the girl he had lost his virginity to. He was awkward during sex with an unearned rough confidence. They never made it again. Gary's struggles with math and reading continued, but he was handy. Gary liked to fix things, work with his hands. He took any chance he had to help work on his father's Chrysler. His brothers sometimes joined in as well. This was one of the rare times Gary bonded with his family. 
Gary enjoyed fishing and hiking. He worked as a busboy and at a grocery store. By high school, he was a bit of a ladies' man. Most of the girls turned down Gary's eager and insistent prodding for sex. But sometimes they'd give in. Gary considered it a numbers game. He still got into fights and won regularly. He spent a share of his time in the principal's office. He played football, something he wasn't overly fond of. And his former coaches can't remember what position he played. But he did play. One day, he met a girl, Claudia, that would sleep with him. Even after the first time. The first time they lay together, Gary prematurely ejaculated. He rolled over next to her, squeezing his temples with the palm of his hands. Gary was experimental. He'd insist on having sex outdoors, in public areas, or in a car. When Gary turned 20, he graduated high school. He felt aimless. The Vietnam War was raging. Gary joined the Navy so he wouldn't get drafted into the Army. Before leaving Seattle, he married Claudia in a military wedding. After the wedding, they moved to San Diego. Within a few weeks, Gary set out on a six-month Navy cruise. While Gary Ridgway was away on his Navy cruise, he failed to maintain a bond with Claudia. He struggled to read or write, so his letters were very impersonal. As it was, he had a difficult time connecting with others in person, let alone at long distances. Gary found he had a ferocious appetite for foreign prostitutes. He liked how it was a business transaction that removed the personal element of sexual intercourse, something that Gary had always struggled with. It may have been at this point that he began to see sex workers as nothing more than objects, tools to be used and discarded. He liked how they taught him things like other positions than missionary, and he learned how to be a more patient lover. During this immense amount of intercourse, he contracted several STDs. It had never occurred to him to use protection. He contracted gonorrhea and checked into the sick bay. Later, when he found it hurt to pee again, he was shocked to find that he had contracted gonorrhea again. It turns out that Gary thought that, like chickenpox, you could only get sexually transmitted diseases once. When Gary returned from the Navy cruise, Claudia confessed to him that she had been unfaithful. She was young and bored, in a city she wasn't familiar with, and as stated before, Gary wasn't exactly keeping the flame alive in his correspondence. Claudia told Gary maybe he should head back to Seattle alone, and she was shocked when he did without much resistance. He convinced her to come to Seattle to be with him, but this lasted one week, and she went back to Washington. She told him that the marriage wasn't working. Privately, Gary labeled her a whore. They divorced less than a year later. Gary moved to San Diego in his early 20s and began dating again. Eventually, he met Marcia. She had a pretty face but was more heavyset compared to Claudia. Because of this fact, Marcia had rarely dated. She was over the moon when Gary began treating her well and started showing interest in her. He didn't seem to mind her weight at all. Growing up, her weight had always caused self-esteem issues. Once Gary had finished school, he had a fresh start. People stopped treating him differently. They didn't mind his mostly quiet demeanor, and academics wasn't a major part of everyday life. Marcia also didn't seem to care that Gary wasn't particularly sharp. He had entered a world where people tended to treat others how they were treated in return. He began working at the Kentworth Truck Company for a low wage. Gary didn't mind the low wage because those in charge were patient with him. Gary never had book smarts, but he grew up working on his father's vehicles. He was slow to learn but reliable. 
he learned that he had a knack for painting the trucks. He didn't mind the monotony of the job. Marsha's close friend Marianne saw Gary in a different light. Despite usually being kind, Gary could sometimes make crude jokes about Maria's weight. Gary once told Marianne in front of Marsha that he married a thin blonde, and that didn't work out, so he married a fat brunette to change his luck. Marianne also had weight issues and wouldn't have appreciated these kinds of jokes at her expense. Both couples spent a lot of time together. Neither couple had much cash, so they ate a lot of pasta and cheap casseroles. On one occasion when Marianne and her husband were over for dinner, Gary and Marcia came up with a tentative excuse of why they needed to leave the house for a moment. Shortly after Marcia came back in the house adjusting her clothes, she asked Marianne, Bet you can't guess what we just did? She and Gary had gone outside to have sex in the backyard. Privately, Marianne felt this was rude and a little weird. Marianne was also put off by how religious Gary could get. Marcia recalls that Gary looked very boyish at the time. She remembers him being real thin and having a childish haircut. Eventually, Marianne and her husband left the church the couples attended. They found it archaic, too hellfire and brimstone for their taste. But Gary hung on to every word and expected Marcia to do so as well. He didn't want Marcia to dress in red. Marcia and Gary had moved into a new home together and she wanted to paint the bathroom an interesting color, but Gary was insistent on white. He told her every room had to be white. The two married and in 1975 and had a son together named Matthew. Matthew grew to be a small child with strawberry blonde hair. Like his father, he always seemed to have a runny nose, which later turned out to be allergies. Something he had to take medication for. Marcia wanted to have another child with Gary. He adamantly refused and wanted Marcia to have her tubes tied. Gary felt that they didn't make enough money to afford another child. Gary's mother, Mary, was still a major part of his life. She still worked at J.C. Penney in a managerial role. Mary was in good shape for her age and still a strong presence. She bought all of Gary's clothes for him, something Marcia wasn't fond of. Mary didn't approve of Marcia. She felt Marcia wasn't cleanly enough and didn't think that she was firm enough with Matthew. Over the years, Marcia had gained more and more weight. It got to the point where her and Gary agreed on a new at the time gastric bypass surgery. The surgery was a success. For the first time in her life, men started noticing her in public, a fact that Gary became increasingly uncomfortable with. With her new confidence, Marcia began to go with Diane, a mutual friend, and Marianne to a country western music bar called The Beanery. It was there that Marcia began slipping out the back with men she met dancing. Gary eventually found out and was crushed. In his mind, his overweight but loving wife had become just another untrustworthy whore. A detective came and knocked on the door, and I said, is it Renee? And he just gave me that solemn look. It was the worst day ever. The Proof Podcast is back with a new case and a new season. 23 years ago, 18-year-old Renee Ramos went missing. Her body was later found in an empty Home Depot building on the edge of town. I don't think that they arrested the right people. It's about time somebody's trying to do something. She had a black eye about two weeks before she was murdered. They are involved. They definitely had her body and her backpack. You know people are going to judge you, right? Of course. They're judging me now. They've been judging me damn near my whole life. You can listen now to season two of Proof, wherever you get your podcasts. And follow along with us as we reinvestigate the murder at the warehouse. I have to ask, 
Did you kill Renee? American Criminal is a new true crime podcast from the studio behind American Scandal and American History Tellers. Every week, you'll fall deeper into the riveting stories of the country's most clever, craven, and cruel criminals. Fraud, theft, murder, and worse. Whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the whole story until now. The debut season tackles one of the most sensational cases of the 20th century, the Menendez murders. In 1989, young Lyle and Eric Menendez brutally shot their own parents. Prosecutors and the press said it was a multi-million dollar inheritance that led two greedy rich kids to murder. But the picture-perfect facade this Hollywood family built hid troubling abuse. Could these teenagers have been driven to kill? Or was it even in self-defense? Listen now. Go to AmericanCriminal.com or search for and follow American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. It turned out that the gastric band was working more than intended. Marsha wasn't taking in enough nutrients and she was literally starving. She had to go into surgery to have it removed. Gary finally convinced her to have her tubes tied while under. Despite this, their marriage never recovered. In 1981, the divorce was final and Gary had to pay child support. Gary, someone who was also very strict with his money, found this infuriating. Gary was told he could get his son on weekends and the occasional vacation. Gary eventually dated again. The key to his success was an organization for divorced parents with children. It was called Parents Without Partners, and Gary attended every event the organization hosted. This is where he met his then-girlfriend whose name has been omitted. In my research, she is referred to as Darla, so we'll call her that. Darla is a survivor of sexual abuse. Her mother's friend's husband sexually abused her. Darla's mother knew what was going on, but she allowed it to continue. Sadly, this is something not uncommon. When Darla grew older, she had a child out of wedlock. She was still in her teens, and she married the father of her son. Almost immediately, they had another child who was also a boy. Darla didn't want to get pregnant again, and she told her husband that she would have her tubes tied after she healed. On Christmas that same year, her husband got drunk and raped her. Darla sunk into a deep postpartum depression. One day she caught herself having thoughts of throwing her baby into a fireplace. Darla confided in her husband, and he didn't take this news well. At the time, postpartum depression wasn't well known. Her husband had her committed. When Darla was released, she found out that she had been divorced, that her husband had taken the children. Darla moved to Seattle from Santa Rosa and began working at a lesbian bar. She was straight herself, but had no issues working with people who didn't share her sexuality. But the depression from losing her children, the sexual abuse, the loss of her husband, the move, all of it, contributed to Darla getting hooked on drugs. When she had enough money, she would visit her children. Over time, her and her ex-husband began having sexual relations again. One day, Darla, while in Seattle, became sick. She later found out she was pregnant. When Darla called her husband, he was not happy. He claimed the baby wasn't his, and when she told him that she had only slept with him, he hung up. When Darla got off the phone, she was understandably distraught. She grabbed every pill she could find and took it. Darla would have died, but her mother found her passed out on the floor. Her mother called 911 and Darla was saved. Once again, Darla was committed. She decided that she wasn't fit to raise a child, so she applied to put her not-yet-born daughter up for adoption. 
but the adoption would not be. Darla's friend talked her out of it, and Darla went on to have a strong relationship with her daughter. After being released, Darla worked a number of jobs. She opted to live exclusively with women for some time, having had enough of men. During this time, Darla also had her tubes tied. Eventually, she moved back to Washington. Darla had several sexual partners, but she didn't think she was being a good enough mother to her daughter. Therefore, Darla began attending Parents Without Partners, and this is how she met Gary Ridgway. At the time, Gary was seeing someone else. Darla found she liked Gary. He was sweet and soft-spoken, but he also muscular with rough hands. His hair was slightly goofy, but Darla didn't mind. She found that she had had her fill of the trendy guys that hung around bars. Gary was 30 at the time and five years younger than Darla, but looked older than her. Eventually, Darla told Gary that she had interest in being more than just his friend. He broke up with his then-girlfriend right away. He moved in with Darla. This was in 1981. The new couple found they didn't have a lot in common. Darla liked to read late into the night, and for Gary, that was out of the question. Gary was mostly an outdoorsman who woke up early to go to yard sales. Besides, as you know, Gary wasn't very capable of reading. Darla preferred going to movies, but Gary would rather watch television. Darla also found that Gary didn't really have friends, though he was very close with one of his brothers. Darla didn't mind Gary's sexual desires. She was very open-minded because of her past. Gary pushed their sexual boundaries. They'd both have sex in locations where they could get caught. In fact, one time when they were having sex on the bank of a river, some people in a boat drifted by and caught them. While they were together, they also experimented with bondage. On one occasion, while they were camping, Gary tied Darla's arms and legs to trees and placed a banana in Darla's vagina. Then one day, everything fell apart. Gary wanted to go to court to get full-time custody of his son. Darla told Gary that she couldn't handle another child, that she learned this about herself, and there was comfort in this knowledge. When Gary told her that he would still press on, Darla broke up with him. She told him that it was upsetting that Gary had never told her that he loved her. She pointed out that not once had Gary bought her a gift. Darla never pressed the issue because it would have meant less if it wasn't spontaneous. If it wasn't because Gary wanted to do it, Gary immediately broke down and cried, professing his love for her, but it was too late. The relationship was broken beyond repair. It was over. Not long after, Darla's daughter told her mother that she always felt there was something off about Gary, something she couldn't put her finger on. One time when she was nearly asleep, Gary had came and sat on the corner of her bed and talked to her. She had that feeling the strongest then. Darla and Gary remained friends. She still felt a soft spot for him. Sometimes she would have dinner at Gary's house. One day things went sour. Darla's daughter brought a friend with her and they were very chatty. Gary was quiet the whole dinner until the girls started giggling. Gary blew up. He started screaming at them for being disrespectful. The whole table sat quiet after that. Darla wasn't sure what got into Gary, but she stopped visiting him. Her relationship with her daughter was more important than her relationship with an ex-boyfriend. Christmas Eve, 1981, Gary was with a date at a parents without partners Christmas party. To his date, Gary seemed somewhat upset since he arrived that night. Several times during the party, his date heard him muttering to himself, just nearly killed a woman. She assumes Gary doesn't want to talk about it because he doesn't bring it up. Privately, she thinks to herself that maybe he almost hit a pedestrian with his car on the way to the party. Maybe he's shaken up over it. 
They date until June 1992 until another member of Parents Without Partners tells her that she's heard that Gary has herpes, that he employs the services of sex workers. She's also told that as of late, Gary has been apt to touch other women inappropriately. They break up later that night. It was around this time that the killing started. Nancy couldn't believe her luck. Her friend bailed out on driving her home, so she spent her entire shift at the VIP tavern dreading walking home in the dark. But luckily for her, Gary stopped by for a beer just before her shift was over. She wasn't going to ask for a ride, but he must have noticed that Nancy was stressed because he asked what was wrong. She explained, and Gary cheerfully asked her if she wanted a ride home. Nancy was happy to get a ride from him because Gary never drank much anyway. He stopped by some nights to nurse a beer, maybe hang around. Nancy had never seen him drink more than a few beers. He seemed to visit the bar strictly for the atmosphere. Maybe it was the sound of the pool table, the jukebox playing music, or the company of the women. Whatever it was, most people that worked at the tavern liked Gary. He was pretty soft-spoken and tipped well. Not an extravagant tipper, but fair. Gary told her he was going to warm up the truck and he'd see her out there when her shift was over. Nancy couldn't help looking at the clock. Only a few minutes left. It was a bad habit she couldn't break. Staring at the clock. The last hour of every shift she obsessively stared at it. This was something that seemed to make time go only slower for her. But Nancy still did it. She couldn't help it. But the few minutes went by, she punched out. And now on the road, she and Gary sat in silence. She didn't mind. When she first hopped in the truck, Gary had shown her a picture of his son, and Nancy thought that was sweet. Now she found herself staring out the window. Gary spoke up. Hey, do you mind if I stop by my place for a moment? You can come in, I just need to grab some things. She didn't see why not. He offered her a beer when they got in. Now Nancy sat sipping the beer. To kill some time, she picked up something from the side table. A woman's earring. Just one. How strange. Nancy heard Gary rummaging around in his room. Nancy kept sipping her beer. She thought about breaking the ice on Gary, giving her a ride home tomorrow. Maybe she could make it a thing. Gary was standing in the opening of the hallway. There was a small lamplight on next to her, but the hall light was off. She could just make him out in the dark. She realized then that she had been startled, though she wasn't sure why. Some animal part of her psyche and maybe because he wasn't saying anything. Gary, you okay, honey? Gary stood there for a moment, still staring, then asked, how long have you worked there? Nancy was caught off guard by the question. I'm sorry? Again, Gary spoke. At the VIP tavern, I can't recall when you started, she told him. Gary lifted his hand to rub one temple. Nancy, what do you think of the Green River Killer? Gary stepped out of the hallway and into the light. Nancy thought Gary looked different. Not just a little, but a lot. Like a different man had came from the back of the room, and Gary was still in the back. She forced herself to not call out for Gary. That's crazy. He's standing right there. Gary seemed impossibly large at that moment. He cast a long shadow. Nancy didn't know how to answer. After a moment, she told Gary that if she were a working girl in the area, that she would find another line of work. His brow creased further. Don't you think what he's doing is good? Do you think we're better off without them? Nancy looked around the room. There was strange gravity to this conversation. 
as if this were the most important answer she would give in the entirety of her life. Yes, Gary, we sure are. At least the streets are getting cleaned up. Her voice felt shaky. She thinks it may have cracked, but she doesn't think Gary noticed. Nancy? Do you know if any psychics know who the Green River Killer is? Nancy remembered that in small talk, she occasionally tells patrons of the VIP tavern that she is friends with a professional psychic. She tells Gary that she doesn't think so, and that if they did, they wouldn't speak up. Why? He asks her. She tells him that because they're afraid that if it got printed in the news, that the Green River Killer would come after them. There's a pause in the conversation. Gary is still looking at her. She tells him that they never will. She realized she must have repeated that they'd never tell three times before she caught herself. Gary's eyes darken. They stare at her in a way that makes her want to shrink. Would you ever be a prostitute? He's biting his lower lip, just slightly, but she can see it. And his hands, his hands are shaking. No, Gary, she tells him. It comes out of her in a small whisper. Suddenly, Gary's entire demeanor shifts. He's turned back into good old goofy Gary. Good, he tells her as he seems to physically shrink in size. You can't ever be too careful, can you, Nancy? Gary asks with a smile. On the ride home, he's cheerful and talkative. Nancy starts to doubt anything strange happened. It didn't feel real. She wonders if somehow the little bit of beer she drank had gone to her head. Didn't she read somewhere that just one sip can fire off synapses in your brain to make you feel drunk? Do you want to hear something funny? Gary asks her. Sure. But she isn't sure. Not really. I've been picked up by the FBI. They kept me for eight hours. Question me about the Green River Killer. Nancy decides at that moment to not ask for a ride the next day. Does your soul cast about like it all? Thank you.